0: Into the Absurd episode number 20 with Dr. Bert Baumgartner. He is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Idaho. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So, what all do you teach at the University of Idaho? What all do you do?
1: So, I teach courses in philosophy. Most of my courses are in what's called the analytic tradition of philosophy, where Things like symbolic logic, language, certain particular kinds of methods are predominant there. So some of my favorite courses that I teach uh, include Introduction to Symbolic Logic. I teach a course called Decision Theory. I've taught a variety of courses related to philosophy of, of science. And then I also am currently teaching a course called Theory of Knowledge, which is what philosophers call epistemology. That's the study of knowledge. So with symbolic logic, what's all that about? <laughs> so uh, one way I like to introduce this is to just recognize that some parts of language express or try to like latch onto the world, but some parts of language seem to be logical in nature. They're, they're expressing some kind of logical structure between various parts of a sentence. So, so for example, if I tell you that like, all squirrels are mammals and John is a squirrel, then you can conclude that John is a mammal. And what's interesting about that kind of argument structure is that the the concept of a mammal or a squirrel aren't really important there. I could have just as easily had said like, all Bemsi dishes are squadly-datches, and John is a Bemberley-Datch or whatever, whatever that first word I said, (laughs) right? I've forgotten you guys, I'm making it up. But then you can infer like, oh, then John is also a whatever the other thing was, right? And so you can figure that argument out just by noticing the structure of like all X's are Y's, A is an X, therefore A is also a Y. So symbolic logic is, the study of that kind of logical structure using symbols and formulas to sort of keep track of that because we can characterize those structures abstractly we don't have to worry about what exactly counts as a mammal what exactly counts as a squirrel and so forth
0: but i guess this really comes into play when you're dealing with law when you're dealing with math computer science i guess i mean symbolic logic could really be the fundamental building block of all three of those subjects right
1: yeah that's absolutely right so it's probably more obvious in, in cases like computer science and math but in law uh, while they might not use the same kind of symbolism of formulas having recognized the sort of logical structures it's what is what's really important so if you for example take like the LSAT one of the th- things that they test you on is recognizing the difference between what are called necessary and sufficient conditions. And those are expressed uh, in two different ways. So if you say the words, if that means something different than if you said the words only if. Hmm. So the example that I usually like to give is, if Johnny eats peanuts, then he has an allergic reaction. So they eating peanuts is supposed to be the sufficient condition. And I expressed that with the word if, and then having allergic reaction is what's called the necessary condition. And I could have also restated that by saying, Johnny eats peanuts only if he has an allergic reaction. That might sound a little bit weird, but uh, the only if part is saying that the allergic reaction part is a necessary condition from the eating of peanuts. And then there's all sorts of inferences men, that you can make, some of them that will be guaranteed and some that won't. So if you see Johnny stuffing his face with peanuts, and if the statement, if Johnny eats peanuts, then he has an allergic reaction is a true statement, then you know he's about to have an allergic reaction. And that's because the eating peanuts is sufficient for the having of the allergic reaction. But it doesn't work vice versa right? Just because Johnny's having an allergic reaction doesn't guarantee that the cause of that was that he ate peanuts. He might also be uh, allergic to almonds, for example, and maybe it was the almonds that he was eating. So just because having an allergic reaction is a necessary condition, that doesn't mean that it's sufficient. That's to say just because you see that someone's having an allergic reaction doesn't guarantee that it was because of the peanuts, even if it's true that if that person eats peanuts, then they have an allergic reaction. So there's like a subtle difference there, right? In the direction of the inference that you make. And that's really, really important for areas like law in addition to a bunch of other areas like computer science and math, as you we were pointing out.
0: Yeah, and with, I mean, with this symbolic logic, you know, um, necessary and sufficient conditions, especially in computer science, cause I do a lot of, at least I'm learning data science. I'm learning about AI. And as we move further into the future, I think, or at least even right now, these things are very important for these fields. And I mean, if a computer isn't logical, then it's, it's not gonna work. For sure. And there's, there's nuances
1: too, right? So in symbolic logic, we're usually studying the, some of the most rigorous forms of argumentation. Um, But the example that I was just doing sort of gives you a nice illustration of the fact that like, look, if you see someone having an allergic reaction, and you know the statement that if Johnny eats peanuts, then he has an allergic reaction, if you know that that's true, then, you know, seeing an allergic reaction is a good clue that maybe they ate peanuts. It's not a guarantee, but it's a good clue. So those kinds of inferences we sometimes call inductive inferences. Those are ones where the the premises or the first statements aren't a guarantee for the truth of the conclusion. They just make the conclusion more likely or more probable. And so there's a whole other area called inductive logic um, and inductive reasoning that studies that particular area. And there the sort of key feature is the notion of probability. And then you get like a mixture of taking some features of math like probability theory and various kinds of assumptions that you're making about the relationship between hypotheses and theories and, and samples and their relation to populations right like you would study in a, in a statistics class so there's a bunch more things going on there in symbolic logic we sort of like put all those things to the side and say okay now let's just focus on this particular kind of reasoning that we call deductive and let's try to understand that
0: and you do some, uh, some research with this, right? Like uh, you try to find some practical applications of it and whatnot?
1: Not so much in symbolic logic per se, but I do use uh, computer simulations in my research. So I'm really interested in understanding how inferences that people make as individuals, how they decide to form a belief or how they go about um, coming to certain views, I'm interested in understanding how, as people interact with each other, how you then sort of on aggregate get these social phenomenon like polarization, especially in politics, you get political polarization. You can also get echo chambers, which uh, some people have distinguished between what are called echo chambers from epistemic bubbles. So my area is sort of interested, or my research is interested in understanding how the individual level phenomenon sort of aggregate as people interact with each other and produce social level patterns. And to do that, I use a lot of computer simulations to to try to understand how the population level things emerge from the individual level things.
0: So do you do any, any simulations on polarization?
1: Yeah, a bunch of, have got a bunch of papers on polarization, trying to understand how we might be able to break up polarization. So John Stuart Mill has this idea that one of the issues that leads to sort of the fracturing of beliefs has to do with the fact that people aren't exposing themselves enough to contrary views. And so he thinks, or he has this argument that suggests that the way to sort of improve society to make sure that people are exposed as much as possible to uh, opinions that they would dissent with, dissenting opinions. And he thought that would be a way to help improve society. So we've used various simulation methods to see if that is right. So if you have a population that is already pre-polarized, if you have the agents interacting with each other on opposite sides of the view, Uh, whether that would break down polarization and the answer is sort of tricky um it's like sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't and so i think it's an interesting philosophical question of trying to understand under what conditions do you expect that to work that strategy of meeting with others who disagree with you when does that work and and under what conditions does it not work
0: well i think i mean when you're speaking to someone of the opposite view that Especially if you're both polarized, if that other person becomes aggressive or angry during the, uh, the conversation or they condemn you, then that will certainly drive you further towards your own side.
1: Yeah, this is actually called the backfire effect. So if you, if you t- show someone some evidence that's contrary to their belief sometimes that person will double down on their own belief when you expect the exact opposite to be the rational thing to do, right? You expect, oh, if I see contrary evidence, then I should like weaken the hold uh, that that belief has on me. But yeah, you're right. Sometimes we see the opposite. It's not quite clear when exactly this happens, under what conditions. There are some cases in political context where we see this happening but we don't have a systematic understanding yet of the of the backfire effect.
0: Well I think a part of that is at least in my opinion is people attach their beliefs to their identity and especially in a a society where we hold our identity very dear to ourselves if you feel that you're being attacked by your beliefs then really you're being attacked by your identity so you yeah, have to double down in order to protect your ego
1: yeah that's right so this is actually called identity protected cognition that is, like a lot of people are studying this and trying to understand how this works so yeah you're, you're exactly right there's there's a bunch of different issues out there that people will sort of double down on their beliefs even in the face of contrary evidence because it it's part of their identity, right? That it's been associated with that. One of the things that we do in philosophy, especially uh, for undergraduates, when we're thinking about writing uh, papers is we try to help people disassociate their identity from what the work is. So when, you know, if you were to write a paper and then I criticize the paper and show a bunch of things that need to be improved Uh, that's not an attack on you, right? But it's like, it's the work. um, And you can, you can improve that over time and and produce better work. But the criticism is of the work, um, not the person who's there. Same thing with arguments, right? One of the things that philosophers tend to be pretty good at is disassociating their own, like, their own identity from the arguments that they put forward. So that when you have someone else criticize the argument, they don't take it personally, right? They might be like, oh yeah, you're, you're right. That was a bad move in the argument. Uh, better have a different argument. It gets harder to do that dissociation when the argument is you know, something that's really close to what you use to guide your everyday actions. So people who have really strong religious beliefs, right? Have a, have a certain lifestyle that is supposed to be in line with that. And so now you have not just a, a belief, but also like a whole framework, right. Of, of your friends and your family, your social groups, all those things are tied together now, wrapped up in in those beliefs. And so it's much harder to disassociate, uh, you know, conversations and criticisms of those beliefs from those other worldly things that are important to you.
0: So is that the epistemic bubble?
1: that plays a role in it yeah we find that for example uh ideology plays a pretty significant role in predicting the kinds of beliefs that people will have or are willing to listen to so we see for example i do some research on uh, vaccine hesitancy which just by chance turns out to be like uh a, a really important area now. Um, when we started this in 2018, we had no idea that COVID was coming. It's just pure luck that um, that this happened. But anyway, we, we do some research on vaccine hesitancy. And what's interesting is that it's the, there are differences between the sort of left and right ideologies. But the thing that I find most interesting is that if you look at people who identify as being moderate, they tend to be the most sensitive to changes in risk. So they seem to behave in a way that is, uh, is more variable depending on whatever the risk situation is. Whereas people on the left and the right seem to have already made up their minds more or less or to, to a certain degree. And so they don't move around quite as much in, in terms of like their willingness to get vaccinated. Um, they're, they've sort of have already made up that decision where someone who's moderate is like, well, it depends, right? Like, are there zero cases in my area or is there like one case in my area? Um, they'll, they'll make their decision much more based on what that level of risk is.
0: So the, so someone who's moderate will, is more likely to kind of weigh their options a little bit more. Whereas someone yeah. who is kind of set on a certain ideology they're, also set on everything else
1: they are set on a lot more things now you know it's not concrete yeah it's just that it's just it takes they need more to motivate them to do something right so like the setting in in your ways is is not a concrete thing but it's just a much tighter rubber band and moderates seem to be uh, less tied down to a particular worldview and and base their decisions more on what seems to be the the current state of the, of the world. Hmm. And it's not, says that, you know, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. It's just, you know, you're asking like, how do worldviews sort of like play a role in, in what people's beliefs are. And, and that's, that's an interesting example of, of where we see that.
0: I'm not sure if this is off topic, but I know Daniel Dennett once said that the worst kind of disease that spreads the fastest and it it spreads to the most people is an idea right that's right yeah and with that said I think moderates are probably more likely to spread ideas than or not necessarily spread ideas I think they're probably more susceptible to more ideas whereas people on who are kind of set in a certain ideology, they're kind of less prone to accepting new ideas.
1: Yeah, good. So there's, there's a question here, right, about whether if moderate, if being a moderate means you're more open-minded or not. And those are subtle, but important differences, I think, right? Someone might be like a hardcore moderate And so they're not open to changing their mind in either direction, right? Yeah. Um, Whereas you can imagine that there's also someone who's a conservative or who's a liberal who considers themselves to be very open-minded, which at the very least means that they're, you know, they're open to hearing uh, alternative ideas. What's interesting for a lot of these, um, these cases of polarization where people seem to be holding more extreme views is that it's not always based on misinformation or disinformation. In fact, um, so one thing that's sort of interesting in the vaccine world is that those who are extremely vaccine hesitant tend to also be quite knowledgeable about what the various issues are. It just turns out that they place weight on different things that aren't always consistent with um, what the scientific experts might put more weight on. Whereas uh, someone might not know very much at all, but is not vaccine hesitant because they just, they follow the recommendations of the experts, right? Um, and so they don't really need to know that much because they're, they're trusting the, that knowledge or what they're doing to whoever the experts are.
0: Yeah, I guess, I mean, there's people out there that are like, oh, well, you know, everyone in my family is vaccinated, so I don't need to do it anymore, right? Or there's there's people that are like, okay, well, I need to get vaccinated because there's going to be a lot of people out there that aren't getting vaccinated, and there's a lot of people out there that have families that aren't vaccinated yet, and I need to take the responsibility to do it, so I am not contributing to the cause.
1: Yeah, yeah. And like the, you know, we don't have to stay on this tangent for, for too long if, uh, if we don't want to. I just happen to be thinking a lot about it and it's sort of topical.
0: No, um, no, go the, ahead. <laughs> but the
1: but the measles outbreak is a great example of this, right? In it was 2015, 2016 is where we started seeing these like increasing dramatically. And you're absolutely sort of right about the kind of reasoning that sometimes happens, right, which is, well, everybody around me is vaccinated, so now I actually kind of don't need to anymore. I can, you know, we call this the free rider problem. As long as everybody else is paying attention or, and following the rules, there is a certain amount of flexibility for some people to sort of exploit that. And that's, we think that's exactly what happened in the case of the measles outbreaks, is that it was considered to be eradicated from the US. So what that effectively means is that there wasn't a sustained spread just within inside the US, most of the cases were coming from the outside. But then at some point there was enough, um, uh, there were enough exemptions for the MMR vaccine so that there were big pockets of communities that had not gotten vaccinated. And then once a few of them were exposed, then it spreads in, in, that, uh, in that community. And now with the reemergence of the measles, right, what you expect to, to see is that uh, a, a re-upping of vaccination um, again, um, because now, again, the risk is there where it had gone away. So there's something really interesting about the fact that vaccines, when they're first being rolled out, right, there's lots of incentive to do it. And then once you have a sufficiently a high number of people vaccinated, then the disease, you know, almost disappears. And then that removes some of the incentive to get vaccinated. But the whole point is that you keep doing it to prevent it from re-emerging. And that can be really difficult to do, um, to convince people to still get vaccinated, even when there isn't
0: uh, any uh, disease incident rate. I guess this almost... Kind of relates back to that paper that you did, the uh, cognitive sortal mobility, in the sense that, at what point is it okay for me to not get vaccinated? And in this case, there isn't a point. You should get vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> this
1: in COVID time, yes, you definitely should be getting vaccinated unless, um, you know that there are going to be, unless you've got certain allergies, right? Um, mm. that that are known about this. Yeah, definitely. Um. And, and even then, right, I mean, now we, we have the tools to be able to deal with anaphylactic shock. Um, you know, if, if you have a bad reaction um, to it, then, you know, in a hospital context, we know how to, how to treat those um, uh, really well. So the danger uh, of those side effects is, is minimal, particularly compared to, like, getting COVID and, um, and what happens if you catch that. Um, yeah, the, the paper that you're talking about, the Cognitive Sortles paper, I, I'm pretty sure this, that was my first official solo authored publication. So I haven't thought about that paper in a long time. But you're right, that one of the things that I talk about in that paper is that a lot of our concepts don't seem to have sharp boundaries. So they're, they're, it might seem like, you know, there isn't a certain number of grains of sand in order to make something a heap. Mm-hmm. This is a, a classic example from, um, from ancient philosophy known as the Sorites paradox. So the you know, thinking of something like you've got a, uh, if you say you've got a drink in front of you, and you're like, okay, no single sip will take me from like uh, a, a beer that is like, you know, mostly full to empty. No single sip can do that. Mm-hmm. But of course, over time, you have tons of little sips. And next thing you know, your beer is empty. So what's going on there, right? Like there seems to be this little by little reasoning that takes you from a conclusion that seems to be obvious or, or sorry, from a starting premise that seems to be obvious to a conclusion that seems paradoxical, right? If I can have a sip and never make it empty, then I should be able to have an infinite number of sips. But clearly I can't. Um, at some point, my beer is empty and I got to get a new one. So in that paper, what I had argued was, even if you assumed that there was a sharp boundary, you'd never be able to find it because the way that your mind works is that the category or the concept is always changing those boundaries because it needs to be adaptive to changes in the environment. And the, the task of trying to solve the Sorites paradox is one of those contexts where things are changing. And so, yeah, there is no last sip that makes a beer go from mostly full to not mostly full, hmm. or you can't find it what it is, even if even if it is, even if there is a a sharp boundary there.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially like when we take that in context with say evolution, right? You know, there wasn't ever really a point where we weren't human. Yeah, you can't can't really draw a boundary because the our genes are constantly mutating and we're constantly changing. We're constantly adapting to our environment. And even if we move on to a new species, it'll be hard to define when that point is.
1: That's exactly right. Be kind of weird to say, like, there is the very first
0: human. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly right.
0: I'm not sure if we really explored in depth how echo chambers emerge in the first place.
1: Uh, Yeah. So, and there's a bunch of ideas for thinking about how echo chambers emerge, right? Some people think it's because there's a strong selection of the kind of information that people pay attention to, right? So they only go to websites that are consistent with their worldviews, right? They only say, watch MSNBC, or they only watch Fox News, or if they're on social media, right, there's only specific people that they follow. So some people think that the primary driver behind echo chambers has to do with the the sort of self-selection of the information that you pay attention to. And then some of the blame gets placed on social media companies where they use certain algorithms to try to tailor whatever the content is to what they're guessing are your key interests. Now, you know to some extent this makes sense if you're doing a Google search, and Google knows, hey, Bert's a philosopher. Uh, when he uses certain terms, he probably means these kinds of websites. Um, whereas, you know, if, if I were an engineer you know, Google would probably be tailoring us things more towards engineering kinds of searches. So it makes some sense, right, that you want to optimize search engines and and these kinds of um, feed algorithms to optimize according to what my interests are. But there are some criticisms that exist that say, well, these have a, a particular kind of side effect where it means that I don't get as much exposure to contrary views or I don't get exposed to things that are sort of on the outside of what my interests are. And then some people have gone so far as to then blame like social media um, for this. Other philosophers and probably myself included think that that's not quite right. That at least in some contexts, the, the drivers behind echo chambers have to do with other kinds of, uh, of mechanisms. And some evidence for this is the fact, as I kind of pointed out earlier, that people who have strong views about some particular topic are often really well-educated about what the other side's arguments are. And if that's right, then it can't just be something about the selective information that they're getting since they seem to be extremely knowledgeable about what the other side is arguing for as well, right? So something else must be, must be at work or at least contributing to these sorts of echo chamber situations. And so what I, what I research and what I'm interested in is, is trying to combine those kinds of considerations, right? There's probably something that's a little bit psychological about being predisposed to certain pieces of information and discounting things that I don't consider to be quite as relevant or as interesting, plus a certain amount of sort of social structures that i'm that i'm in, embedded in so the story is probably much more complicated than uh we'd like it to be It'd be much easier if we could just blame social media companies for this right but i think the phenomenon is actually much more complex
0: yeah i mean the the social media platforms are really just using our own psychology in a
1: lot of ways yeah right
0: so it's not i mean it's it can't really be them you know it's i mean they're Essentially, just trying to get us as focused on our platform as long as possible, right? So that we could have more exposure to advertisements. I mean, that's the whole goal, essentially.
1: Yeah, certainly that plays a big role in it, right? And there's probably limitations to that as, as well, right? In that, like, if I'm only ever seeing things that are exactly in line with my interests, I'd probably get bored, Every once in a while, I need to see something that I disagree with, or something that I was like, "Oh, I don't think I like that," and then I think about it. Someone's like, oh, "Maybe I do." Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the way that sometimes, like, someone shows you a show or recommends a show, and you're like, "This seems terrible," and then, you know, after a couple episodes, you're like, "Oh no, this is actually kind of cool." And then, of course, the algorithms often adapt to that new, that newfound love, right? What I was actually just gonna say in in response to sort of the, the algorithms often like amplifying what, what is already something inherent in, in us. There's, there's a really cool book called The Weapons of Math Destruction that mm. talks about, yeah, not mass, math. And what's really cool about this book is it, it shows how for a lot of different areas, a lot of different institutions, Various kinds of mathematical models are used to try to make certain kinds of predictions. And it turns out that a lot of these models have assumptions that are biased. And then what the model effectively does is amplify those biases and then creates its own success conditions. And I've forgotten what her name is now, the author's name, but... In that book, uh, The Weapons of Math Destruction*, there's some really interesting conversations about how a lot of kinds of models, and that might also include social media's um, algorithms, but also includes things like models for recidivism in in prison sentences, and thinking about projecting people's uh, financial responsibility, um, that those are often sort of kind of like self-fulfilling prophecies that are inherent in the models that are just amplifying pre-existing biases. So echo chambers might be an example of that kind of phenomenon as well.
0: Yeah, I guess with I mean with everything today, um, with all of this, I mean our whole culture these days is very stimulus based. And with that said, I think that certainly amplifies the bubbles that we find ourselves in, these echo chambers. And I, I mean, I've been certainly a victim of being in echo chambers. I try not to be, but it's very hard to get rid of you know, that desire to have a stimulus in your life and have something there that you can kind of stay focused on. When there's like so many things out there that kind of drag your attention in. And at least right now, I think, I don't know if you watched The Social Dilemma.
1: Yeah, I have.
0: But yeah, I mean, in that movie, there was this country where the government gave everyone a cell phone, and the first app that was on there was Facebook. And then they used Facebook to essentially start a civil war yeah and it well it's it's just it's crazy how things like that can happen with such a seemingly harmless technology and a useful technology is like you know facebook you know this thing that can connect the whole world but in some instances it's not really connecting it's more so dividing and then connecting the people that are within these divisions.
1: Yeah, right. I think it's often important to sort of distinguish between the technology and then the uses that technology has, right? I mean, classic example, it has to do with like, um, with nuclear technologies, right? You're like, on the one hand gives us a pretty incredible, relatively speaking, clean energy source um, that doesn't require us to build dams that doesn't require us to um, sort of pollute on a scale uh, as other kinds of fueling systems have right um but on the other hand similar technologies just blow people up i don't know if i'm allowed to swear on this podcast but um you know it's just like it's, it's really similar technologies right and a lot of it just has to do with the kinds of uses that they put to it social media i think can sort of do the we am seeing the same thing it's a, it's a it's a really helpful technology that can be put to different kinds of, of uses, And so you can't just blame the technology. You have to sort of analyze things in, in a broader context. And as like another good example, right? So I, I'm part of a, um, certain running communities, especially trail running communities. And I'm able to connect with people that I otherwise would never have been able to, to connect with. And I think that the kinds of, Advocacy that I now do for wilderness and, and trails and, and, and including things that I don't do as much on like in mountain biking Are have all been facilitated by the fact that I've been able to make these connections through social media And the, the other sort of somewhat silly example that I give is You know, there, it seems to be pretty innocuous if you're part of an echo chamber that is about like the pie makers of the Palouse Right, it's just like <laughs> Who what kind of worries are we going to have? But, you know, we'll have disputes about the best pie making, but you're like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Not how much brown sugar you should use is, doesn't seem to, to have a huge impact. Right. But obviously in, in a lot of other contexts, you know, it's not innocuous and echo chambers can, can lead me to forming beliefs that are not only false, but, can can be really dangerous not just to society but also ultimately to myself and it's really tough to draw the line between like where do we go from the innocuous to the the dangerous and again there's not going to be a sharp boundary as we've kind of talked about so far
0: yeah i mean i think there's definitely beliefs that seem harmless at first but if you expand it say everyone believed it it is not harmless
1: yeah right Kant had like in what's called the categorical imperative tried to build a whole sort of ethical system roughly based on this idea right it's can you imagine can you universalize this action or this practice if you can then that's at least consistent and so doesn't seem like it would be immoral or unethical to do that but if you can't universalize it then that seems like uh, there's an issue with uh, that action or that practice. And the vaccination is actually a sort of good example of this, right? It's like, yeah, um, can you, you know, can you universalize people not getting vaccinated without people, the, the disease and spreading? No. Um, hmm. Right. So to, to, you know, to whatever extent we take that sort of really preliminary somewhat half hearted, you know, Argument that that would be maybe an argument to get to get vaccinated uh, from Kant's perspective.
0: So, what do you think Mill would think of vaccination? <laughs>
1: That's a good question. I mean, because John Stuart Mill, uh, he advocated for having as much diversity of opinion as possible, because his thinking was, if if I interact with someone that I disagree with, either I will learn why my own belief turns out to be false. And so I adopt then a true belief, the belief of my sort of opponent or the dissenter, or in the conversation that I have, I will realize that there are additional reasons to demonstrate that I'm in fact, correct. And the, my interlocutor um, is actually turns out to be wrong. So he thought there's no downside for having interactions with people of, of differing opinions. That said, I don't know how much he would have wanted to advocate for for a certain kind of dissenting opinion, right? I just think that his advocacy was primarily focused on having interactions between people who disagree, but not necessarily thinking that there should only ever be or that we should half the people should believe one thing and half the other people should believe another. He didn't advocate for something like like that, right? in addition, Especially I think for him, there was also a difference between people having a belief as opposed to at the very least entertaining a belief for the sake of argument uh, and using that, like entertaining that belief as a way to help understand why what we believe ends up being justified. So being exposed to the contrary opinions is is a really good way to help develop the kind of justification that, that we think we need in order to turn our beliefs into something like knowledge. But to the extent that he would have argued that there has to then also be people who believe, you know, those things, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's extremely important to be exposed to the contrary opinion Especially, I mean, when I'm exposed to the contrary opinion, at first I get a little bit, I kind of put a guard up in a sense. I get a little bit nervous if I'm exposed to something that's very different than something that I'm used to. And there's kind of two cases that happen. Either if they get kind of angry or they condemn my beliefs, then I usually kind of, yeah, I do that, I do that double down thing.
1: Yeah, back back,
0: I'm like okay well their belief is dumb you know I'll just not even think about it but if they're kind of kind about it and their understanding of what I'm saying and they give a good reasonable argument then usually I have to kind of take a step back and I think oh why was I even thinking that in the first place I feel like I've been lied to about my own beliefs I can't believe I've been believing this for you know 10 15 years of my life yeah
1: yeah yeah for sure and this this shows you just how much in those interactions it's not just an exchange of information right in those interactions you trying to develop some kind of relationship as a conversational partner that assumes you're both being authentic, right? That you're expressing views that you really do believe, or if you don't believe them, you're signaling to the other person, right? Like, well, let's just say for the sake of argument that this is the case, right? So you're still, there's a certain amount of authenticity there that, you, that you're trying to build on, which is also related to trust, right? So it's connected to the fact that when you say certain things, I'm, I'm going to generally rely on the assumption that you're not trying to deceive me, that you're, you're trying to tell me the truth, um, to the best of your knowledge, right? And, and then related to that, right? There's some sort of collaborative effort that we're, we're, just the, we're just, we have different beliefs, but we're both still trying to do the same thing, which is to get to the truth. And it, you know one of us will ultimately be wrong, but we're not trying to just score points on one another. Uh, we're actually trying to just figure it out. And I think when you have things like those kinds of background assumptions set up, and those are the basis of a conversation, you're much more likely to make headway in the conversation and have a better chance of both persuading your opponent of what your view is, but also potentially correcting what your view is. Um, I mean, ultimately, if the aim is to have true beliefs and not just being right, then you want to expose yourself as much as possible to contrary views, to give yourself the best chance of having as many beliefs that are true. It's very different, right, than a sort of confrontational approach where you're like, I just feel, I just want to score points. I just always want to be right. I'm just going to get into as many arguments as I can to like, to take people down and to demonstrate just how smart I am, right? That's a very different attitude. And even if that person was right, I wouldn't want to listen to them, right? They're like some snooty person that I'm like, I don't want to listen to you, right? Uh, Like same arguments that someone else could make, but in an honest way where I have You know, we've got a common goal, we're trying to cooperate, we're just trying to figure it out, much more likely to to take those kinds of arguments um, seriously. And that's all to say, right, it's not just about the information. It's it's also about how that information gets presented and the background assumptions that are made about the kinds of relationships that hold between the individuals who are having the conversation. Those are really, really important considerations that philosophers have more recently been taking seriously. Um, so there's been the traditional area of what's called epistemology that focuses a lot on what the individual needs to do to elevate their beliefs to the level of knowledge and in social epistemology we look at a variety of different social factors and social considerations that are relevant to the the knowledge building process.
0: Yeah I think with all that with epistemology and these social bubbles these with polarity all these issues i certainly think a lot of these things can be solved by doing what mill says and approaching the opposite side but you also have to do it in the right way you know
1: yeah i think that's right
0: and I think studying logic like what uh, what you do is very important, at least when you go about trying to understand the arguments of other people, because if you know that someone's argument is illogical, then I think it's important that you acknowledge that it's illogical. And then instead of attacking their illogical viewpoint, I think it's important to realize, oh, well, they probably just argued it in the wrong way. So maybe I should wait and talk to someone else that might be a little bit better at communicating their idea.
1: Yeah, or relatedly, I mean, one of the hardest things I think to, to get used to is when you believe a conclusion already from someone's argument, it makes it much more likely that you're willing to accept whatever argument was provided for that conclusion, because you already agree with the conclusion. But if someone tries to persuade you of a conclusion that you disagree with or is opposed to your worldview, you now have an incentive to go looking for mistakes in the argument. And what's really tough is is someone making an argument for something that you agree with, and then saying, "But that can't be the right argument because." it's a bad argument even if the conclusion is one that i agree with yeah and that is a really really hard skill to learn
0: hmm. have you learned this skill at all
1: huh. i mean as a logic teacher yeah but as a human being hopefully <laughs> 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 to some extent i mean the example that i always uh, use is you know i i like chocolate i like i like beer and so when I see news articles about like the health benefits of like eating chocolate or drinking a certain amount of beer, it's like, oh yeah, that that, argue, that, that must be a good scientific article because it's got a conclusion that I agree <laughs> with that I like, right? Whereas whereas if I get articles that are like, no, oh, you know, even having two beers a day is detrimental to your health, first thing I do is like, oh, there's got to be a mistake in that statistical analysis, <laughs> right? And I like I go hunting into the article looking for the mistakes, right? So, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm definitely not immune to it, but do I catch myself in that? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, part of my training as a, as a philosopher is that it's part of my job to, to get better at that and to teach other people to, to be better at that. So by no means do, do I think that I'm immune to it, but uh, I'm certainly better than I was, I imagine, as uh, when I first started doing philosophy.
0: So do you have anything else you'd like to share?
1: Tell people to study more philosophy.
0: I will. Uh, (laughs) I think everyone should.
1: (laughs) You know, at least take a handful of courses. Take a at least one lower division and one upper division, and if you can, take a take a logic class, whether it's symbolic logic or critical thinking. You know, I I think those those courses can have a huge impact on you, and and you know the ways that you might think about things that that you might not have previously recognized. So, yeah. that, that's what i've encouraged more more people to do
0: all right well uh thanks for coming on
1: Hey, right, thanks a lot greg
0: and if you have any questions comments or concerns just email into.the.absurd.podcast at gmail.com thank you for listening <laughs>